Hi Praxis, thanks for joining us tonight. I hope you're all doing well. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alan. I'm one of the interns here at Lighthouse. This is actually my first time preaching to an iPhone. And this is actually my first time preaching at Praxis. Pastor Gavin and Chris asked me to continue our series in the book of First Peter. And in God's humorous providence, we come to a passage that is very exciting because it deals with a very riveting topic. Government. Government. I say that all a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's a snarky summary of our general reaction to government. Some of us could care less. You know, find the subject matter of politics completely unriveting. This part of life is boring. We're apathetic to it. And government is not something we're itching to talk to our friends about. It's not dominating our thought life. I will confess when Pastor Gavin and Chris asked me to preach this particular passage. It's not like I was necessarily celebrating and jumping out of my chair, telling my wife, yes, yes, finally, my two favorites, preaching and politics converging in this passage. Now, others of you hear all that I've said now, and you are offended because you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. Government, politics, that's near and dear to your heart. Maybe it's your passion, your hobby horse. You can't get why so many people are indifferent to this critical topic. Maybe you majored in political science in college. You subscribe to all the podcasts. You've seen everything put out by Ben Shapiro. Or you're a proud and vocal Democrat, Republican, or Bernie Sanders fan. Frankly, someone like me, you find very annoying. How can you not be up to date with the latest political issue? How can you not care about the state of our government? How can you be so dumb? Am I dumb? Probably. But that's another story, another issue. You see, both attitudes on both sides are in danger of missing the point. For the Christian, both pers perspectives are too small, too isolated. We need to strike a proper biblical balance. To those who view government as the vehicle of society's salvation, as the end-all be-all, we need to pull back a little bit. The Bible is clear that as Christians, our first concern is God and His kingdom. That we fundamentally wage a spiritual war. At the same time, for those of us who are a bit aloof, who are indifferent to this topic, we need to push in a little more. Because the Bible is also clear, as we will see, that though we seek the kingdom of God, that affects and shapes how we live as citizens on earth. I mean, the very fact that the Apostle Peter devotes time and ink to write about government reveals something profound. It is important enough to take up space in the Holy Scriptures. It is an avenue by which we render worship to God. So if it matters to God, it ought to matter to us. We just need to put government in its proper place. And thankfully, our passage tonight does that. Let's do a quick recap because it's been a while since we were last in the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them or open your Bible app to 1 Peter chapter 2. I just want to rewind a little for context's sake, back to verse 9. 
So if you remember, the theme of 1 Peter is hope. Hope for suffering sojourners. And here, in verse 9, Peter is drawing a line in the sand. He's making the difference between Christians and the world pronounced, obvious. Listen as he bombards us with titles that set us apart for God and his purpose, that highlight our uniqueness as followers of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Christian, together you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Or in the words of Jesus, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. Peter is merely echoing our Lord. Distinction. Distinction. Put your distinction on display. And the apostle wraps it all up and drives it home in verse 12. Here's his main thrust. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, how will we achieve this? What are the good deeds done that will lift the gaze of the watching world to the glory of God? We might assume it's in reading our Bibles in public at the coffee shops, or standing at the street corner evangelizing to the lost, or caring for the poor and less fortunate, or reserving our Sundays for church. And those are good options, but Peter introduces us to a way we probably wouldn't expect, to a way we probably wouldn't pursue. He says, you want to do good that glorifies God? Submit to government. And that's the pivot in our passage now, from verse 12 to verse 13. So follow along as I read our passage, and then we'll pray for our time. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. And God, where can we go? You have the words of life. And so nourish our souls with scripture, with passages like this that equip us to think properly in a way that would honor you. And let our thinking transform our hands and our feet that we would be set apart for your purposes, even in how we relate to government, Lord, how we model to others what it looks like to be a worshiper of Christ by being an obedient citizen. And use your word to teach us, to humble us, to surface ways in which we are rebellious uh, against you, against our authorities and the authorities you have placed in our lives. Oh Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you need an outline to kind of navigate through our text, uh, our first point is the mandate. The mandate. Be subject to government. Look again at verse 13. 
It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The apostle doesn't write these verses from an ivory tower. He's well aware of the times. Put yourself there. It's Rome, mid-60s. Flickering in the horizon, you see the glow pulsating against the darkness of night. You make your way forward. The eerie melody of the lyre reaches your ears. The strange seems out of place. Adding to your confusion, you pick up on the scent of rotten flesh burnt. As you come closer and closer, you begin to discern the details. This blurry image comes into focus, and there you are, standing in front of this beautiful and royal garden that is illumined by many repulsive candles. What am I talking about? Well, these candles are crosses staked into the ground, burning bright because fastened to each one was a Christian, dipped in wax, scorched to a crisp. If that sounds like something from a Stephen King novel, I wish it were so. But church history records that the emperor during Peter's time, Emperor Nero, hated Christians and persecuted them in a nasty way. One of his favorite methods for inflicting pain was keeping his front lawn lit through the night with the charred corpses of believers. You see, Peter's words in verse 13, they carry weight. They pack a punch. It would have perplexed the apostles' readers. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, including emperors as supreme and wicked as Nero, including governors who would carry out such atrocious acts. In fact, the apostle Peter himself would suffer a similar fate, being crucified upside down. Now today, we don't live under such a crazy regime. As much as you may disagree or dislike our government, we aren't persecuted like in Peter's day. Sure, we may be mocked, misrepresented by politicians, but I think it's safe to say we're not afraid of being crucified, of being converted into lampstands for some psychotic dictator's personal garden. We got it easier in comparison. We live in different times. And yet, though the circumstances have changed, the command has not. Be subject. A taboo word, submit. It's the idea of putting yourself under the authority of a superior. This word was found often in military contexts to describe chain of command. Or put simply, follow the leader. Follow the leader. It applies in war. applies in that childhood game, follow the leader. And for the Christian, it applies in politics. Notice how sweeping this is. How this is without exception. Every human institution. The qualification is not whether you find them respectable and smart. Whether they are charismatic people. Whether you share the same opinion on foreign policy or how to spend the Federal Reserve. No. From top to bottom. From emperor to governor, or today's parallel, from president to police officers, we should be marked by our submission to government authorities. After all, government is instituted for our benefit. 
Peter discloses the function of these political powers at the end of verse 14. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The government serves to promote good and curb evil. To esteem virtue and extinguish vice. Sure, no government does this perfectly. And Peter will admit this and I think we'd all agree. But there is a reason we sleep safer at night knowing a governing body exists instead of not. For all the imperfections of any government, ours included, it still beats anarchy, right? You've seen the trailer to Purge. You've read Lord of the Flies. You're familiar with Tiger King, Joe Exotic, and those kinds of suspect characters. They're crazy. People are sinful and depraved. If they or other loose cannons had free reign, we'd be very nervous. If there was no government in place to keep the deranged and wicked in check, well, as strong and brave as Pastor Pastoral Intern Allen is, I'd be very scared. I know, I know, I, I'm a grown man, I have a family of my own, and yet I'd probably be crying for mommy. Now I continue shelter in place even if coronavirus was gone. I mean, on that note, think about the pandemic we're in, about the spread and chaos of COVID-19. Without a government to regulate our quarantine, to organize delivery of PPEs and to stimulate the economy, essentially to lead our country, we'd be a complete mess, absolute mayhem. Our society would degenerate into a survival of the fittest, a wasteland of pillaging and panic and all sorts of other kinds of evil. Could more have been done and done better by the government? Sure, no doubt. But I wouldn't trade an imperfect government for the absence of one. I can guarantee you, without the presence of these worldly authorities, the number of cases related to COVID-19 and the number of deaths because of the coronavirus would be much higher. A government's flaws don't give us ground for rebellion. A government's shortcomings don't excuse us from submitting. There are exceptions to the rule, but they are exactly that, exceptions. What should be normative is our submission. That as Christians, we are the best law-abiding citizens. So let me ask, Christian, do you pay your taxes? I mean, this year, you have reprieve. You have an extra bonus 90 days to get them all prepared and ready. Do you wear a mask when you go out, as ordered by our mayor, doing your best to only leave your home for essential things, making sure that you maintain social distance? Flat out, are you heeding the mandate of, and hear this, the mandate of God. You see, in God's infinite wisdom, he has established leaders and governing bodies for our common protection and prosperity. And we demonstrate we trust him when we submit ourselves to these human institutions. Why? Because ultimately, our allegiance is to no earthly Lord, but to our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter has already alluded to this in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. And now in verse 15, the apostle makes it crystal clear. We transition from our first point, the mandate, 
be subject to government. To our second point, the motive. The motive for the sake of God. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God. Let's stop there. We're intrigued, right? The will of God. That's what we're all about. That's what we're after for our age and demographic here at Praxis. We want to know the will of God for our career ambition, our jobs or lack thereof. We want to know the will of God for our marital status, whether we will stay single or we should pursue someone, who to date. And while the Bible gives us wisdom when it comes to those issues, the scriptures are explicit as to the will of God and our relationship to the government. That we are called to submit for the sake of God. God is our ultimate authority and the government is his delegated authority. And we prove we get that when we obey. That's why when the two are clearly in conflict, we must always side with God. The Bible is filled with examples of this. You think of Daniel. He rises up through Babylonian ranks, you know, holding a position of power, serving in the royal court. And yet when a decree is issued, banning prayer, Daniel will not bend his knees to the king, but to God and God alone. On bending knees, he continues in prayer. Think about the Apostle Peter, the author of this letter. We read in the book of Acts that the gospel is spreading and officers catch wind of this. The apostle is brought before the leading council and he's criticized. And they charge him to cease preaching. What does Peter say? He boldly declares, we must obey God rather than men. How do we navigate, therefore, through our submission to God and government? How does it work? What are the dynamics? Maybe a silly illustration would help. Some of you have gym memberships, I'm sure. You know, but let's say that your gym is whack and shady. It's a no-holds-bar kind of place. They just don't care. There are no rules for respecting people or the property. So if you want to steal stuff from the locker room, go for it. If you want to pick up a dumbbell and throw it at someone's head, go for it. They don't care. But when someone calls 911 and reports you, and you get arrested for theft and assault, you can't protest to the officer, oh, no, 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 it's all good. My gym said it's okay. They're cool with it. No, you still go to jail. Why? Because you're a citizen of the United States of America before you are a member of that ghetto gym. And so the same, Christian. You are a child of God before you are citizens here on earth. Do you get that? Peter is prioritizing our obligation. Caesar and the emperor may sit in their position of power. The president may dwell in the Oval Office, but never forget Christ reigns on high. And when the edicts of Rome and the law of the nation prescribe something clearly contrary to the law of Christ, well then we need to take sides with Peter and say we must obey God, not man. We answer to him, his mandate is ultimate because he is our motivation for life, for everything. And if there are consequences for our obedience, well, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ, right? We've counted the cost, and we will leave that to our good God. 
he'll do what is right, whether that's shutting the mouths of lions or allowing us to be wrongfully imprisoned. What governs our action is not possible outcome, but pleasing God. And look at what God is pleased to do with our obedience, with our faithfulness. God's intended will leads to God's intended result. The text continues and says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You want to do good according to God? To do good that glorifies God? Then part and parcel to our witness is submitting to the authorities God has sovereignly placed in our lives, in our society. And when we do that, the text says it silences the haters. Literally, it muzzles their mouth. You know what Peter's writing here? If you want to render the opponents of the gospel speechless, if you want to take the bark and woof out of foolish people, you don't do it with a good one-line zinger or persuasive philosophical argument. You do it with a testimony that is backed up by a transformation, a transformation so thorough it touches even how you submit to government. Friends, let your lips and lives match. You call God Lord, then good. You have the opportunity to show it in how you subject yourself to earthly authority. Our salvation is not in which political party holds greatest sway in the White House or what public policies actually pass. Our salvation is in Christ our King. Our goal is not social reform, but God's will performed. Finally, we reach our last point. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter shows us how we do all this, the manner, the manner. So from the mandate to the motive, now to the manner, as servants of God, as servants of God. And really, this encapsulates everything. When we understand our identity, it then therefore influences even our citizenship here on earth. Look at verse 16. Live, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I want you to think about who you are in Christ. Do you realize how radical the gospel is? That it changes everything, that it frees you, that once guilty before God, now in Christ you are no longer condemned. At once enslaved to the power of sin. Now in Christ, he has broken those chains. That once afraid of death. The sting of death. But now in Christ, you are freed from fear because of his resurrection. He has conquered the grave. At once enticed by all the allurements of this world. Now in Christ, we are freed. To live and long for a better country. Beloved, in Christ, we are the freest of all people. And having been liberated from evil, debauchery, and sin, it is only sheer madness to return to the very thing that shackles and troubles us in the first place. You know, if my wife forgives me for saying something harsh, you know, the response of my heart shouldn't be like, oh, cool, free pass. I'm off the hook. I can say another mean thing or I can do something dumb. No, the inclination of my heart should be towards her, to love and serve her. 
Christian, you have been freed from sin, not to it. We're not liberated to autonomy or to indulge our flesh again. The true Christian doesn't deliberate over how much he can look like or live like the non-Christian without actually becoming one. That's not true freedom. True freedom is holy appetites, godly ambition, that the old has passed away, the new has come. True freedom is being ransomed from sin and redeemed for a savior. True freedom is the ability to live, love, and serve the best and perfect master, our Heavenly Father. Praxis, let what is rich and true theologically be demonstrated practically. A gospel transformation so comprehensive, it includes how we live under earthly authorities. But never mix them up. You may submit to the government, but you are servants of God. Peter closes our passage with a few guiding principles. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now this short verse is very practical. Uh, In it, Peter rattles off a series of commandments to shape our thinking, to transform our living. First, honor everyone. Honor everyone. So that means there are no grounds for racism, ageism, sexism, discrimination based upon physical or mental capabilities or economical social status. Christians of all people understand the dignity and worth inherent to every human being because we have been created in the image of God. C.S. Lewis in his C.S. Lewis way writes this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Friends, we are to honor everyone. The world doesn't do this. But as Christians, when we do, it causes us to stand out. There's more though. Second, love the brotherhood. While we are to honor everyone, there is a special quality that should characterize Christian relationships. Love. I don't think this is completely shocking. Jesus is adamant about this in his ministry. John 13, 34, 35, right? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this supernatural love that you have for one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Imagine a group of people of all shapes and sizes, with all sorts of personalities, ages, and interests. Imagine this community to be bound together, not by shared ethnicity, hobbies, occupation, or zip code. Now the glue to this community is the love of Jesus Christ. Our love for one another is meant to be supernatural, that it forces the non-Christian to consider what knits us together, what is at the center of it all, the gospel message. When our transformation is noticeable, it gives unbelievers more reason to consider the truth. Yes, as Christians, let's talk and teach about his love. But let's also allow our love for one another to do some talking. Finally, I'll handle the last two together. 
fear God, honor the, gov uh, the emperor. Look, you may not like the president, the House of Representatives, the Senate, the mayor, the governor, any and every civic official, but your job is not to like them or approve of everything they do. Your job, beloved, is to honor them. What does this mean? It means you don't speak harshly about them, put them down in a crass way, and instead you pray for them. You commend them when they are doing their job well, when, when they are doing good things for our country. And I guarantee you this will set you apart. Especially today, right? When everyone is so quick to lash out and bash upon our political leaders. When everyone seems to have a very strong opinion on how the government is failing us. But when you're conversing with your coworker, your roommate, your unbelieving family member, and you refrain from swearing about our government or uh, being derogatory towards our leaders, I guarantee you that will set you apart. A lot of people get visibly angry, hostile, very heated. But we have the opportunity to display our distinction in how we even talk about our government, the authorities we're under. We can be civil and gracious. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. It doesn't mean you have to endorse everything our politicians endorse. But you can still do so. You can still disagree in a Christ-honoring fashion. Why do all this? We may honor everyone, but there is only one we fear. We may obey government officials, but we worship God. And you acknowledge Him as divinely sovereign when you subject yourself to the earthly sovereigns that he has placed. The reality is, the rulers are not ruling anything at all. God sits on his throne. There's no one who ever lived this passage out better than Jesus. He was born under the law, and he submitted to the law even unto death. When he's beaten by the Roman soldiers, brought before Pilate, there is an interesting exchange I want us to call to mind. Jesus is silent, and Pilate questions him. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Talk about turning the tables. A hoax trial. A crooked verdict. A gruesome crucifixion. And yet all these do not happen outside the purview of God. And so, from start to finish, what do we hear? Not my will, but yours be done. It's played on repeat by Jesus. This is the contour of his ministry. Obey, submit, obey, and submit. If suffering comes, then so be it. God is good and wise and sovereign. So much so, that even from a bloody cross and with his last breath, Jesus can cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And from such a submission, the fools are silenced. The greatest good is done. And the glory of God burns brightest. From the darkest blotch in redemptive history, salvation bursts forth. A light so magnificent, it calls us out of darkness and into His glorious light. 
And from there, the pattern is established. We trace the outline of our Lord and Savior. We obey, submit, obey, and submit. To the government, yes, usually so. But ultimately, friends, to God, God alone. If suffering comes, then so be it. The shape of our ministry is not defeating our opponents in political argument or enacting what we think is right here on earth. Now, these victories are, at best, a step down from our true aim as Christians. To win souls to Christ. To do good and glorify God. If unbelievers refuse, malign, or persecute us, let it not be for lack of transformation. Let us give them no other reason than because they reject the truth of the gospel, this gospel that is so great and grand that it governs even how we submit to government. Let's pray. Father, you have provided your word and it is sufficient for life and godliness. It tells us of the great salvation story that we have been redeemed and ransomed from our sin and set apart for your purposes. And one of the arenas in which we radiate for you is in politics, in how we are good citizens, carrying out our obedience that we might testify to your glory and your grace. And so continue to shape us, to fashion and form us after the image of Christ, that we would follow in his footsteps, Lord, that we would honor him. Oh God, continue to work upon our hearts. Use your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.